The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For now, I would encourage you to please open in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the Minor Prophets, to the book of Habakkuk. Now, as you know, we recently finished preaching through the book of Mark. That was a lengthy endeavor. It spanned about two and a half years. And honestly, I'm really going to miss it. I love the book of Mark. There's so much joy that I gained from being able to study it and learn from it and to, and to preach it to you. But I'm also very excited now to move into a much lesser known part of our Bibles. And I would venture to guess that if I were to take a quiz right now and offer you 10 questions about the book of Habakkuk, most of us in the room would fail. This short book that's hidden right there in the middle of the Minor Prophets is rarely quoted or even mentioned in most of the sermons or Bible study materials that I have ever preached or ever heard. But in this little tiny book is something incredibly rich for us. It has so much wisdom, and I believe that you will find the main message of this book is of incredible value and is very timely for you. So please join me in praying that the Holy Spirit would speak through the pen of Habakkuk over the course of the centuries that it has come to us in order to speak to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there is uh, perhaps even a little bit of, of trepidation in the hearts of the people as they are stepping into what is probably an unfamiliar book. Perhaps there is a little bit of curiosity or interest. Lord, I pray that as we move now into this very poorly poorly taught, very uh, not well-known minor prophet. God, I pray that this would be more than just a passing curiosity. I pray that this would be something of deep value for us, that we would see this is your word and that we are not to overlook it. And God, I pray that today as we come to it, we would humbly bow before it, that we would see that it is your truth that is meant for us, that it was written to the people of his day, but it was written for the good of the church. God, I pray that we would, in these words, see Christ clearly proclaimed. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me the ability to clearly present these words. I ask that you would allow me to do so faithfully, that you would allow me to do so winsomely and lovingly. And I pray, God, that your spirit might do a great work beyond even my expectations this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're not a big fan of history, I mean by that the subject of history, I would assume it's because you've never actually had a teacher who could teach it well. In terms of basic education, I can't think of any subject that's more fascinating than history. This art form that we call history is a way to remember and to understand the biggest events and people in all of world history. And by it, we learn how we arrived here. We are shaped in our understanding of even who we are as a people, as a culture. And often, the study of history results in our determination not to repeat it. Scripture is not only God's philosophical truth. It is also grounded in genuine historical events. And sometimes we have to understand what is taking place with historical kings and kingdoms in order to understand what God is speaking about in the Bible. You cannot understand the Protestant Reformation without at least a cursory knowledge of the Roman Catholic Church. You cannot understand the Declaration of Independence without the British Empire or understanding colonialization or religious freedom. It's impossible to explain the great value of our 14th Amendment and the promise of basic rights for all citizens without understanding it against the backdrop of the evil practice of slavery. You must know history to really comprehend what is being said. Likewise, it's impossible to understand the little book of Habakkuk without first rooting ourselves in the historical drama that was unfolding all around him. The Israelites were part of a united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon. But after that, there was a civil war that took place in 931 BC, which broke the nation in two. 
ten tribes in the northern kingdom, they were called Israel, and two tribes in the south, which are referred to as Judah. Now, I'm going to be putting these dates up here on the screen. Feel free to write them down or ignore them however you would like. For me, I know that the dates are helpful in getting a guideline. Please understand, we are in B.C. That means the numbers are counting down to zero. So as we go forward through time, we're going down in number. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They were destroyed. And after that, Judah was like a political football. They were constantly being attacked by the two superpowers that surrounded it. There was Assyria and the Assyrian Empire to the north, and there was Egypt to the south. And Judah was constantly trying to make different agreements with them so they would not be assimilated or destroyed. They were constantly in danger. They were constantly under attack. And if God had not miraculously spared them, Judah would have been destroyed just like Israel. Then something major happens in 640 B.C., Josiah became the king of Israel at the very young age of eight. Now, can you imagine that for a second? That would kind of be like Ethan Arnaud, who is nine, becoming our president right now. Now, there's Ethan. Uh, I would vote for him, um, but not till he's a little bit older. In our country, you were required to be at least 35 years old before you were the chief operator of our nation. And so likely when, when he became king, Josiah had minimal power. He was probably not making a lot of national decisions. <clears throat> but we know that he grew to be a great king. In fact, he was the last good king of Judah. And he tore down the Assyrian idols that had been set up all over the nation. And he crushed them into powder. And he put a major focus on the worship of the one true God of Israel. Later in 621 BC, while he was repairing the temple, they found the books of the law and they took them to Josiah. And it seems like nobody in Israel had studied or known anything about them for many generations. The Torah, which is what they uncovered, had been all but forgotten. But Josiah read it and he immediately began to reinstate appropriate forms of worship in accordance with the books of Moses. Chief among his efforts was a refocusing of worship in the temple and a proper practice of sacrifice. We learn from Second Chronicles that the Passover had not been practiced for at least a hundred years. Habakkuk was probably a young man during this revival of Josiah. The Bible actually gives us very little detail about the life of the author of this little book. His known biography could fit onto the back of a postcard. But we know most of his ministry took place during the life and reign of King Josiah. It's likely that he worked in the temple. We believe this because, in part, uh, we see in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, God tells him to write these things that he's learning on tablets for the entire nation of Judah to come to him to see them. This means that as they were coming to him, they were probably coming to him to hear what God was saying at the temple. And if you take just a second to flip over to the end of the book, look at the very last sentence, chapter 3, verse 19, you will see that it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now this indicates that Habakkuk intended chapter 3 to be sung like one of the Psalms. It was to be a regular part of temple worship. Now this has led some people to speculate that Habakkuk was himself a Levite priest as well as being a prophet. And although that's possible, I tend to doubt that it's true simply because there is never a time anywhere else in the Old Testament that someone holds both the office of priest and prophet. So I believe he did work in the temple, but I don't think he probably was a Levite. Other scholars believe that Habakkuk was a professional singer who led Judah in worship in the temple courts. That's probably a bit more on the right track. But what we can safely say is that Habakkuk was a prophet who worked in the temple somewhere as part of Josiah's restored order of proper worship of God. And things were going great. Things were really amazing in the kingdom of Judah for a while. During the revival of Josiah, the nation seemed to be living in repentance. It appeared that the people were returning to God. It seemed as though Judah had rejected all of the evil practices of idol worship, but... 
The coming events would reveal just how cosmetic most of those changes really were. In 609 BC, the tectonic plates of world powers began to shift once again. The Assyrian Empire to the north of Judah came under attack by the Babylonian Empire, and just as quickly as they had risen to dominance, the Assyrians were being snuffed out. And the Egyptians, meanwhile, they're looking up there to the north side of Judah. They're looking at the Assyrian lands being carved up by the Medes and the Syrians and most of all the Babylonians. And they're looking at that and thinking, if that Babylonian empire comes down here, they're going to crush us too. We have a weak military right now. So you know what we need to do? We need to go on the offensive. And you know what we need to do? We need to get some of that land that's being carved up like a pie for ourselves. So we're going to send troops up there. But this required them to send their troops right up against the border of Judah. And Judah knew if, if Egypt owned the property beneath us and to the side of us and above us, eventually they're going to also control us. So Josiah rides out to battle against Pharaoh Necho II, and Josiah was shot with multiple arrows, and he was taken back to Jerusalem where he died. This threw the entire nation of Judah into incredible turmoil. Josiah had reigned well for 31 years. I mean, our presidents last for eight years at the most, and then we get an entire regime change here, right? Except for FDR, ignore him in history, he's an outlier. But even then, we're only talking about just a small portion of history. 31 years is a long time that he had reigned as a good king and the people had looked up to him. And now the people of Judah looked at his sons and they said, really, Eliakim, the oldest, should become king. We definitely don't want him to sit on the throne. And they looked at him and they refused him and they rejected him. So they made Josiah's other son to be king instead. He was barely even... Basically, he was barely even able to sit on the throne, though, because as soon as he was placed there, within three months, he was kidnapped by the very man who killed his father. He was kidnapped, and he was taken to Egypt, and he was imprisoned there. And Pharaoh Necho II took him and said, you know what? I'm going to make Judah my vassal kingdom. Necho became the de facto overlord and set up Eliakim, the one that they had rejected, and made him king instead. And he forced Eliakim to change his name to Jehoiakim. This is the same man that the people refused and did not want on the throne, and it soon became very clear why they had rejected him. He immediately began to use all of his limited power to undo everything that his father Josiah had ever done. This is the summary introduction that we are given of Jehoiakim the king in 2 Kings 23, 36-37. It says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah. Don't name your child that. The daughter of Padiah of Rumah. Verse 37, the important verse here. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers, or that word can be translated ancestors, had done. Now this is important in line because what you will see at the beginning of each and every king is this little line that will say, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the description that we get of this king is that he does what was evil. When Josiah was king, the nation had been thriving and it seems like they were regaining political strength. It looked like they were getting military power. power. Their borders were actually expanding. And most importantly, God was at center stage in the kingdom. But Jehoiakim, he ruled the nation with selfish and wicked intentions. He did not honor God, and he did not listen to the prophets. Habakkuk, imagine him now, somebody who had probably been instated by Josiah, who loved God, who was worshiping God in the temple. He was surely perplexed by the sudden shift of the religious emphasis of the nation. They had gone from a ruler who had done everything in his power to reinstate and uphold proper worship, now to a king who is seeking to utterly destroy it. Jeremiah chapter 26 verses 20 through 23 tells us just how far Jehoiakim went in his attempts to silence God. Verse 20 says, There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. Now, just a little poll here. How many of you have ever heard of Uriah the prophet? Not Uriah that was killed by David, but Uriah the prophet. Anybody? I mean, very few. If you've read your Bible, you've seen him there. We probably overlooked this guy. But it seems as though he was significant in history. 
He was a prophet. And continuing on, he says, he prophesied against the city and against this land in words like, like those of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, significant prophet. Incredible words of truth. Uriah is speaking just like him. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard of it, and he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt. And they brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. I'll imagine that just for a moment. Imagine if our president, current or past or future, the president himself were to call a famous pastor forward and say, I don't like what you have to say, and was to personally kill him and take his body out and throw it into a mass grave. How would the people of God react? I think like what we're going to see here in the book of Habakkuk. This prophet named Uriah was a contemporary of Habakkuk and is possibly even somebody who served in the temple with Habakkuk. They might have been friends. Many commentators believe that the murder of the prophet Uriah was probably the specific inciting incident that prompted Habakkuk to cry out to God in the way that he does in this book. Habakkuk is looking around in stunned frustration at what's happening in Judah. He is disgusted by the violence and the evil that is permeating the people. He is exasperated that this is not even primarily a groundswell of the people's rebellion, like it had been on occasion in the past. Rather, it is a top-down, intentional approach by the king himself to squelch the word of God. And Habakkuk is writing from a place of concern. He's writing out of uncertainty. And most likely, he's even writing a little bit out of fear. Habakkuk cannot contain himself any longer, so he cries out to God, and God answers him. The book of Habakkuk is very unique among all the prophets. It's the only prophetic book that exclusively shows us a conversation between God and a man. Habakkuk and Jonah are the only two prophetic books which never once use the phrase, thus says the Lord. Now, Jonah doesn't use that phrase because it's mainly a narrative, a story about Jonah's rebellion against doing what God had told him to do. But Habakkuk never uses that phrase because he never talks to anyone except God in this book. It's just a dialogue between God and the prophet, and it is recorded for us. God did not send him out to be a preacher. He didn't send him out to herald this. His ministry was unusual. Yet, as we will see, it's incredibly helpful and insightful. One commentator that I read refers to Habakkuk and his place amongst the saints as the Old Testament philosopher of religion. The book has a very simple outline, and we're going to follow it over the next few weeks. It goes something like this. Step one, Habakkuk asks God a question, and God answers it. Step two, Habakkuk asks God a follow-up question, and God answers it. Step three, Habakkuk now understands, so he writes a song of joy, a hymn of praise to God for his wonderful work. This week, we're simply going to examine the first question of Habakkuk and the first answer of God. So, now that I have successfully completed the longest sermon introduction in the history of our church, let's actually look at the text beginning at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now you won't see this in the text, but there is a shift in person that takes place here. This is now God speaking. This is his response. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded 
and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagle, an eagle to swift swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, I want you to notice here how Habakkuk begins. The entire book is grounded in this one initial question. O Lord, how long? He is pleading with God to give him clarity. He's even desirous of a timeline here. He's looking around at his circumstances, and God is not acting in accordance with Habakkuk's expectations. So what we're going to do today for the remainder of our time is really, really simple. We're going to attempt to answer one question. And we're going to ask the question, is it acceptable for Habakkuk to ask God this question? And by extension, we're going to seek for clarity for ourselves about what this teaches us about how we should approach God when we don't understand what he's doing. So again, the question we're asking is this. Is it acceptable for Habakkuk to ask this question? Now, the short answer is yes. End of the sermon, everybody go home. Yes, it's okay. No, we're going to flesh this out. We're going to answer it in three different ways, and we are going to see three reasons why this is acceptable for him to do. So answer number one, yes, we can see that it is an acceptable question because God does not answer accusingly but affirmingly. Now, I believe we can begin with a very broad stroke biblical approach here. There are occasions in the Bible where it is clear God says he will refuse to listen, to even listen to certain people's prayers. Now, roughly around the same time period, perhaps even the same year as this book is being written, Jeremiah the prophet was given this word from the Lord. We read these words in Jeremiah 11, 11 through 13. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, now that would include prayers, right? Speaking to God, calling out to God, crying to him. I will not listen to them. He's saying, this is it. I'm not even, I'm plugging my ears. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods of whom to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their troubles. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. There's a group of people that will cry out to God, and God will not listen one bit. This passage in Jeremiah shows us that they were not heard because of their idolatry. But Habakkuk was not only heard, he was answered verbally. Now, there are very few people, very few in all of world history who have called out to God and had their prayers entertained like this. And consider the tone of God's response. God does not speak in the same way that he did to Job. Do you remember when Job spoke out against God? Job 38, God responds and says this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And if you go on, there's about 70 more verses just like that. God's response to Job was very different than Habakkuk. Instead, God lovingly does something that he never did for Job. God reveals just a glimpse of his purpose and just a glimpse of the future to show Habakkuk that things are going to get much worse before they actually get any better. There is never any indication from God in either of his responses to Job that he is frustrated, that he is irritated, that he is disappointed with Habakkuk for asking these questions in the way that he does. So our answer, first of all, yes, we believe that it's acceptable because of the way we see God responding to 
him. We believe that this question is acceptable because God is not accusing him, but affirming him in the way that he is asking. So we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to get an understanding of why this kind of questioning is acceptable. What was he doing specifically that made these kinds of questions reasonable before God? Our second answer is, yes, it was acceptable to ask because this question is born out of a proper emotional and theological motivation. In other words, it is not seeking to defame, but to define God's character. When we read the Bible, or anything for that matter, we naturally overlay our own motivations onto the text. Even when you watch a movie, you, you do this, whether you know you do or not. You begin to acknowledge this person has a motivation, this person has a motivation, and you'll find a character that you most rep- are, are find a representation with, and you will begin to put your own emotions, your own circumstances, your own mindset over that person and say, that's what I would do. I would be like that. And you begin to think, this person represents me in the story. And we tend to do that with the Bible when we read it. We tend to first read by our emotions and then only later, secondarily, maybe read it by careful logical examination. So when we come to the first verse of Habakkuk, Chapter 1, we could unfairly paint Habakkuk in a very different light than we should. Allow me to explain it this way. Perhaps you're angry with God. Perhaps your, 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 your heart is, is filled with frustration. You've been experiencing some deeply discouraging circumstances. And you come to these verses and you begin to read them out loud. And you scream in frustration. Oh Lord, how long? How long will you do this to me? How long will I cry for help? And you're not going to hear me or cry to you violence. And you do not save. Why do you make me see you in iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? And your response, your view of this is filled with anger towards God or frustration at him. Or maybe you're experiencing some kind of a hardship. And instead of responding with anger, you instead respond with self-pity, which is just a good expression of pride. You think so highly of yourself that you believe that any form of suffering is an undeserved punishment from God. So instead of just humbly accepting what God is doing, instead you whine and you say, and I'm paraphrasing here, Lord, how many times do I have to deal with the stuff that you're putting me in? How often do I have to go through this? Why don't you just get me out of this mess? I can't believe you won't even lift a finger to help me. Perhaps you're reading Habakkuk through that kind of a lens. Please understand, these sorts of readings of the Bible are not only unfair to the character of the author, they're also doctrinally very damaging. For example, I grew up being told in a church that it was okay to go to a quiet place and yell at God when you were frustrated at the way he was doing things. And so when I was in high school, I found a bridge out in the middle of nowhere, which in Kansas is very easy to do. And I I deemed it to be my bridge, and I would go out there whenever I I needed space or I was angry, and I would complain and I would whine to God, and even to my great shame, occasionally I would yell at him. And I had been taught that this is acceptable and reasonable Christian practice. But our interpretation of these pleas to Habakkuk are not to be read through our own lenses of emotion. We are not supposed to place ourselves into the text in that way. Instead, we understand his motivation by carefully inspecting the rest of his question so that we can see what his motivation truly was. Look at verses 2 through 4 again, and I want to draw out for you not just one, but two underlying motivations that are kind of two sides of the same coin here that are revealed in this prayer, and we're going to flesh them out a little bit as we go. As I read through these, through these words, look for these two sides of justice, punishment for the wicked and mercy or blessing or freedom for the righteous. That's what he's seeking here. Follow along, beginning in verse 2. O Lord. Starting right there, he is acknowledging from the very first thing that comes out of his mouth. You are Lord, you are God, you are sovereign, you are in control. This is not my will, this is your will be done. But he's approaching God on God's terms. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Now this cry for help is not merely a personal cry. It's hard to see this in the English text, but please understand this is a corporate cry. He's calling out for help, not just for himself, but for those around him. And it could be translated this way. It could say, how long shall I cry out for you to help us? 
This is a plea for mercy for the righteous, for the people of God who are being attacked by the people of the world. And he continues on, or cry to you violence and you will not save. Now notice that this is also probably not speaking about personal salvation from violence. If the death of the prophet Uriah really was the inciting incident here for the writing of this prayer, then it is likely he is actually asking God, why did this righteous colleague or friend or person that I know about end up dying instead of being spared? Even if Habakkuk never knew about Uriah, which is unlikely, then it still seems that he is not crying about violence that is taking place against himself personally, but rather against the people of God. So this falls into a category, once again, of finding or seeking mercy for the righteous. How could you allow the righteous people to suffer at the hands of the wicked? Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? So now it becomes personal for Habakkuk. This is the first time his plea becomes individualized. He is questioning why God would cause someone who is seeking godliness to so abruptly and consistently be confronted with sin. I think this falls into both categories. He is calling for judgment on the wicked here, and he is calling for mercy on the righteous. Why don't you stop them from doing what they are doing, and why don't you protect me from what they are doing? Destruction and violence are before me, he says. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Now Habakkuk is lamenting the fact that the law is not doing its job. It is incapable of carrying out any kind of judgment. He refers to the law as being paralyzed. Now remember, Josiah found the law. And he reinstated the practices according to the law. But now it seems that Habakkuk is looking at this situation and it looks to him like somebody has taken a, taken a sledgehammer out and broken the knees of the law and said, it is crippled, it is paralyzed, it cannot do what it says it is supposed to do. This makes it, of course, impossible for justice to be accomplished. So Habakkuk continues. He says, for the wicked surround the righteous. Again, you see this as a call of mercy on the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Again, a call for justice or punishment for the wicked. So please understand, Habakkuk is not asking the question because he thinks God is evil. He is not impugning God's character here. He was legitimately confused about the nature of God's justice and his mercy. And he is asking precisely because of his knowledge about the character of God. God, I know you're just. And I know you love those people that belong to you. How, how can you, who have this great character, allow this to be taking place? He expects God to judge the wicked. He expects that God will bless the righteous. And these expectations are firmly grounded, not in his own imagination, but in the very law that he had read. The law that Josiah had found. And I think that we often have this very same question. I know that I have. We wonder, where is God when the culture is literally disintegrating around us? Where is God and his judgment or his mercy when homosexual men will sue a baker for not catering their, their illegitimate wedding? We look at that and say, where is God's mercy for that man or judgment against the wicked? Where is God's justice on the wicked when ISIS burns entire Christian churches to the ground with Christians in them? Where is God's mercy to his people when they are being imprisoned in China and Burma and Indonesia and Pakistan every single day? Where is God? What is he doing in heaven? How can he allow such wickedness to increase among the nations? And we ask this question because we have a firm confidence that God is good and because he is just and that he is merciful to his people. And we see in Habakkuk's prayer that he believes God is sovereign. He believes he has the ability to fix all of this. He has the ability to change all of this injustice that's taking place. And Habakkuk, just like we often do, he's struggling to understand how a good and loving God could allow his people to experience unjust, at least from his perspective, suffering for God's sake. So Habakkuk is not asking this question out of sinful motives. This is not a backhanded way to accuse God. 
Now, earlier when I said that you can be angry or you can be mopey and complaining, those are backhanded ways to accuse God and say, you don't know what you're doing. My plan is better than yours. That's not what's taking place in the heart of Habakkuk. It is a genuine plea for clarity and understanding about how to piece together these realities of a fallen world in light of the glorious character of God. So that's the second reason that we see that it's acceptable for Habakkuk to ask this question the way that he does. And here's the third reason that I believe that Habakkuk's question is acceptable. This prayer is not a, a, a bowing up, but a bowing down of his heart. Now, I apologize for the English language here. Bowing and bowing are spelled the exact same way, but they're two different words. Bowing up is like terminology, slang to say, I'm going to fight you. I don't, it's like a bristling of your nature. You, you're refusing what you're seeing in another person. You're ready to confront the other individual. He's not bowing up, but he is bowing down in his heart. He is not arrogantly rebelling against the heart of God. Instead, he is humbly approaching God, seeking genuine understanding. Now, it could be easy for Habakkuk to see the great evil that was taking place in the world around him and to be filled with a deep-seated bitterness at God. But instead, Habakkuk bowed himself low and said, I don't understand. I don't understand. Please help me. He does not go to a philosophy degree to understand this. He doesn't go to secular psychology to understand this. He doesn't go to self-help books to understand this. He goes to God himself and says, please help me. I don't understand. And God answer, God's answer continued to bow Habakkuk even lower. Look from the again to verse 5. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, our view of the world is parochial. It is localized to our own minuscule vantage point. God is simultaneously intertwining trillions of events and circumstances together, both good and evil, and he is taking those threads and he is weaving them in such a way that it produces our maximum good and his maximum glory. So God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. He doesn't say, just sit in your room. And look inside and just take a peek at your own heart and just see what I'm doing there. He says, this goes way beyond you. Look around, wonder, and be astounded. Habakkuk, your perspective is too small. He was seeing the tapestry of God's grand design through a pinhole. He was only able to get a glimpse of the majesty of God's plan. And that little glimpse that he saw is something he did not like. But God said to Habakkuk, even if I told you all that I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. Now, I don't take this to mean that Habakkuk would refuse to accept it or that he would rebel against it or that he would deny what God is doing. Rather, I think that this statement of unbelief means that he would see God's plan and it would not his rejection and his unbelief would not stem from rebellion, but rather it would stem from a complete inability to comprehend it. He couldn't even fathom the greatness of what God is doing here. Habakkuk, if you just knew what I was doing, you couldn't even believe it. My plan is way bigger, way better than you could possibly imagine. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, you know this verse, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts... Then your thoughts, Romans eleven thirty four. for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's telling Habakkuk, your mind, you can see so little. Just take a peek around the nations. You can't even imagine what I'm doing. My plan is so great and your perspective is so small. So God pulls back the curtain just ever so slightly to reveal just a tiny taste of what is about to take place. Look again at your Bible, starting at verse 6. It says this, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, who, by the way, are the Babylonians. For I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, and their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That means it leaves themselves. Not it's coming out of them, but it's leaving them. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fierce 
more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Now, just a pause. This means he's probably writing right after the, Assyri- uh, the uh, Syrian capital of Nineveh was defeated by the Babylonians because that's how it happened. And so he's talking about this and saying, you think, you think Nineveh, that great city, the same Nineveh Jonah went to preach to, this massive capital of the Assyrian Empire, they look at that and they laugh. <laughs> Big deal. They sweep by like wind and go on. They don't even settle there. They just destroy and they leave. And then it closes by describing their theology, whose own might is their God. These people are incredibly wicked. They are incredibly violent. They are incredibly evil. And their understanding of who God is, is themselves. I am my own God. I will do whatever I want. My strength is stronger than your strength. I have more power than you, so I am therefore in charge. Might makes right. Now, we're not going to dig too deeply into the Chaldean invasion this week, but I just want you to see that this is the exact opposite answer from what Habakkuk was desiring. Do you see that? He is asking the Lord, How long, O Lord? And essentially the Lord says, If you think it's bad now, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm getting ready to send the Babylonians after you. Now, Amos was right in his chapter, chapter 3, verse 6 of his book, when he says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? This is not an accident. I'm getting ready to do something intentionally. In Isaiah 45, 11, God said, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You just better wait, Habakkuk. Calamity is coming. Destruction is coming. You think violence is there now. Think about these people. This is the kind of person who is coming. And this was a pivotal step. This was an incredibly important step in showing the nation that the law was indeed, just like Habakkuk said, incapable of producing righteousness or justice. It was incapable of changing people's hearts. The Old Testament law, in that sense, was powerless, or as Habakkuk puts it, it was paralyzed. So Habakkuk picked up this thread in his own time, and he realized, he's looking at this, and he's saying, the law can't do what I want it to do. It cannot do what I think it needs to do, and this is terrible news. The law cannot change people. But later on, on the other side of the cross, Paul picks up that same thread and he looks at it and he says these incredible words. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from what? From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Habakkuk says this law is incapable, and we agree. And what is the law that God has accomplished? What is it that God has accomplished? What is the answer to the paralyzed law? It's the gospel. Look at the very next words. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh or intentional obedience to follow the law, but according to the Spirit. Habakkuk, you're not going to believe it. Habakkuk, you cannot imagine what God is doing. This is bigger, this is better than you could have ever asked for. God is going to redeem his people from their sin. He's going to do it. He is going to save them from their inability to keep the law. He is going to fulfill all righteousness by obeying God in every way that we fail. Habakkuk, don't you get it? Don't you see? God is doing something bigger than you can imagine. Brothers and sisters, The reality is that there were no righteous people in Habakkuk's day. None. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So Habakkuk's looking around and he's asking, where is justice for the wicked and where is mercy for the righteous? And there's only one righteous man who ever walked the earth and he did not receive mercy from God, but instead he received justice. He received justice from our sin. 
This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Habakkuk was battling to understand where the mercy of God and the justice of God and the judgment of God were. But we need to look no further than the cross. That is Habakkuk's ultimate answer. There we see God's judgment poured out not on his enemies at that time, but on his own son. And there we find mercy. That's where we go to find mercy. There we find blessing. There we find peace. There we find joy everlasting because the judgment that was meant for me was utterly spent and poured out on him. Habakkuk asking, why aren't these wicked people destroyed? He's asking, why have you not destroyed Caleb? Why have you not destroyed Jim? Why have you not destroyed Mike? Why have you not destroyed these people? Because you and I fit that bill. And why not? Why not? Because of the Son of God. Habakkuk, you don't see. You're asking for something you don't even want. Habakkuk, the law cannot fix it. You're right. I'm sending something. I'm doing something amazing that you can't even imagine. And if I told you, you wouldn't even believe. It is incredible. And the answer is the gospel. So to quickly recap, Habakkuk was right to approach God this way, right? I believe so. Why? Three reasons. Because God doesn't answer accusingly, but affirmingly we can see that. Secondly, because Habakkuk is not seeking to defame, but to define God's character. And thirdly, because his prayer is not a bowing up, but a bowing down of his heart. Now we've got a lot to learn from Habakkuk, and we're going to come back and we're going to learn a lot more uh, in the following weeks. But let's close our time together with the word today with just a few really quick practical applications. Number one, is it okay for us not Habakkuk, but for us to pray this way like Habakkuk prayed. Now, before I answer that, really, let me first say Habakkuk did not have the book of Habakkuk. Do you understand this? He was not able to look and learn revealed truth when he was dealing with this situation. He did not have Romans 8.28, which promises us that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't have as much of the revealed word as we now have. In fact, that's why God has graciously allowed his book to be in our book, his prayer to be recorded for us, so that we learn from what God has taught him. So is it okay for us to ask these questions? I think the answer is probably yes. But when you do ask them, how do you ask them in accordance with that list that we've already talked about, but also by going to the place where those answers are? God is not going to open the sky and speak to you in the same manner that he did to Habakkuk. But he has spoken to you right here, so go to the place where he has given you that answer to the word. And if you can't find it there, maybe you're not familiar with where to even begin looking there, that's okay. Talk to us, we'll help you find it. And we're not going to give you psychology or personal experiences. We're going to stand on the word of God and say, this is where to find it. And if we don't know, we'll dig till we get there, because the answers are here. Second application for the day. Do not be afraid to communicate your confusion to God when you are incapable of reconciling in your mind two seemingly paradoxical truths. One of the things that happened in the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was something that was broken in us. Not only are we now sinners by nature and choice, our reason is now distorted. We naturally perceive and believe the world is something very different than what God has told us that it is. So when you begin to look at the things of God and you begin to have difficulty putting pieces together, don't let that fill you with fear. Be comfortable going to God and communicating, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. You can ask questions like, how can God be just and merciful? How can Jesus really be fully God and fully man? How can God be three and be one? Our our faith is filled with mind-boggling truths like these. And when we reach one of them, we need to be like Habakkuk and humbly get on our knees and call out to God and ask him for help. And we'll see that from the rest of this book, those are the kind of prayers that serve to truly build your faith. Habakkuk starts out by asking, how long, O Lord? And he ends by writing a psalm to God. And that should be our desire that we seek to honor him and love him and serve him to the point that we're saying, I want to know how to worship you for what you're doing. Help me understand how to worship you best. Application three, never, never for any reason, make an excuse 
to accuse God or to demean his character or to speak to him in anger. Do not use your circumstances as a reason to mope in your self-pity as you pray. Come to God for your needs, but come to him appropriately. He's a loving father. He's a loving father. Yesterday we had a parenting conference for everybody who's here. I'm sure you are truly blessed by that. I'm so thankful that I was here. I needed to hear what was being taught. Um, one of the things we talked a lot about was fathers and the way fathers need to love their children. He is the example. He is the archetype. He is a loving father. And he even tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon me. I'm not trying to reject them. I want to know him because I care for you. But he knows the difference between a Job and Habakkuk. He knows the difference between an accuser and somebody who is seeking genuine, humble answers. He can discern every thought and intention of your heart. So gauge carefully how you approach the throne of God when you are experiencing trials or suffering or anything in your life. Fourth and finally, when you are having a hard time discerning the plan of God, remember the big picture of the gospel. Now we know that God has been up to something. And we know exactly what that is because the Bible is clear. We know the purpose of the greatest event in all of world history, the cross. We know that our salvation is found in Jesus. We know that if we are found in him, we are held fast by him. And God has also given us a glimpse into the future. He was gracious to Habakkuk and he gives him just a little taste of what's coming. Hey, you want to know what's coming? Let me just show you. Let me just peel back the curtains. Just a smidgen. Well, he's done the same thing for us on the scope of world history. And he has shown us that he's promised to bring us home. He's not left us here alone. He has promised that there is a glorious Lord returning and you and I fit snugly right into the middle of God's grand panoramic tapestry of the world. So for now, we see that dimly. Like Habakkuk, we are looking through a pinhole. Our perspective is very small. But let's trust that God does know what he's doing and let's find our peace and comfort in that. We will dig a lot more into this specific point next week. And I hope that you've been encouraged by this. Habakkuk is, is a great book. We're gonna, I'm really going to enjoy it. I hope you are as well. But let's close our time with Habakkuk now in a word of prayer. Our God and Father in heaven, what an encouraging thing to know that you're not only in charge, but you've got a plan. You have set out the end from the beginning, that you know all of the details, that there is not, as R.C. Sproul once said, there is not even a maverick molecule in the universe, that you control everything. And God, we thank you that we can trust you because your character is perfect. You are good. You are loving. You are merciful. And God, we also thank you that you are just. God, we praise you that you have been kind to us in not giving us the justice that we deserve, but been kind to us by giving us mercy. That you have given us mercy because of the cross, because Jesus took our sin. God, we pray that as we as we leave this text this morning, that we would leave with a better understanding about how to worship you well, how to pray to you well, how to love you well. And God, I pray that we would be encouraged as we go throughout the week that you are in control of every step that we take. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And if you want to practice praying appropriately, please stay after the service here in a few minutes for our time of stand praying.